turn to Daniel chapter 1. Or no, Daniel chapter 2, sorry, Daniel 2. Forgot to say it earlier, we had some guests uh, helping us lead worship today. Uh, this is Ryan Pappenfuss. You guys, you guys have had, probably seen him before, but uh, continually blessed by our partnership and, and just um, fellow kingdom family at First Baptist Church Harrisburg. And so really, really this half of the stage came from, from them. They just uh, sent some help for us today as we were a little shorthanded. And so blessed by that. The guy leading here, Pap, was uh, in junior high whenever I came on staff at McKinley Avenue Baptist Church back in like 2006. Uh, as the youth pastor, 19-year-old Blake playing the guitar was a senior. Uh, and so it's fun for me to uh, see those guys up here leading and uh, Chad was not, but um, he's a good dude nonetheless. <laughs> All right, Daniel chapter 2. We've got um, a good portion, but it is narrative, and I promise I will not go an hour like I did last week. I promise. It's always bad news when preachers make those promises, so, so just going to pray for me. All right, Daniel chapter 2. We're going to pick it up. In the, it, this is a narrative story. We, last week, we saw that Daniel approached the king and said, hey, I've got the interpretation of this dream. Uh, today, we're going to look at Daniel as he gives the content of the dream miraculously, right? God gives him that, and he delivers it to the king. And then the interpretation, and, um, and we have lots to glean from it. So let's read this to get together, Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read 31 through the end of the chapter, and then we will um, ask for God's help as we jump in. So Daniel 2, starting in verse 31, says, You saw, O king, and behold a great image, this image mighty, and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you, tell, tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of ages, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, the birds of heaven, making you rule them over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. <clears throat> and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And that iron... And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly, and partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And neither shall that kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is a God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and made great gifts <clears throat> and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Let's pray. God, would you help us as we approach your word? We confess that uh, we need to hear your word because it's authoritative, and Lord, we are your people, and so we come before you asking for your help to, to understand and to receive and to apply your word. May we just have the privilege, Lord, of sitting in the presence of the Spirit as you speak through me. Lord, it's not about me. May you speak through me your word for the good of us, your people, for the advancement of your kingdom, and ultimately for your glory. We ask these things and hope these things in Jesus' name now. Amen. Well, uh, as we can see, King Nebuchadnezzar here, if, if, you're, if you're catching up with us or if you're not familiar with the story, he is the ruler of Babylon. He rules for um, many years, or 60 or so years, and he is a significant, he is the, the ruler of the power of the day, and uh, he answers to no one, and yet something has him terrified, and that something is that God showed up to him in a dream. That even the, the ruler, the, the king of kings on earth, when God shows up, they indeed tremble. The, the verse that says that every knee will bow and someday like we will all confess, this is just a, uh, an early showing of that sort of holy authority. When God shows up, even the greatest of men will indeed tremble and bow. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar has experienced because God showed up and freaked him out in a dream. And he's so concerned that he doesn't just take his usual um, you know, advice and interpretations from his uh, sort of court of dream interpreters, but he wants them to prove their authority by not just telling him the interpretation of the dream, but also to giving, them, giving him the content of the dream. So he says, I need to know what this dream means, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. you got to tell me. And they're like, hey, dude, that's not possible. I don't know if you missed something, but nobody can do that. Nobody's ever been able to do that. Nobody, nobody's ever asked anybody to do that. He says, I don't care. I'm going to kill you all now because you made me mad. So that's the deal. Daniel goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Daniel's in this crowd that's about to get killed. He says, give me a chance. I'll tell the king what's going to happen. He doesn't have the word from the Lord yet, but he in faith says, give me a, give me a showing <clears throat> before the king, and I'll give him what he desires. Daniel has faith in God. He steps up with faith, much like David, stands before the giant, goes, hey, God's got this. And so he steps out. He goes to his community group. They pray. God gives him the answer in a dream. He goes and tells the king that he's got this, that God gave him this. And so the king goes, are you going to be able to tell me? And so this is where we pick up the story. And Nebuchadnezzar is listening to Daniel, and Daniel begins to give the dream first and then the interpretation. So uh, for us, th this, you may feel like, man, I, I don't, this is weird. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why this matters to me. And, and, and partly because this idea of kingdoms and shifting and, and kingdoms being transient is, is sort of something we think of in, in history past, 
right? And I think every generation is going to struggle with that to a degree, right? We, 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 you know, history is something we look on sometimes with condescension and like, how could they, right? And we don't think about the future. We don't know how to think about the future. I think it was George Orwell that said every generation thinks themselves or likes to imagine themselves more intelligent than the last, right? And wiser than the one coming up after them. Right, and we, we get that, right? How many jokes do you hear about millennials and now Gen Z? And like, there's all, you, you get that, right? And so we, most of us living in America in our day and age have had, you know, pretty genuine security and haven't thought about, you know, that sort of shifting. Whereas in these days, there, the, the idea of sovereign states with secure boundaries and established boundaries was not a thing, right? It was whoever had the most power and whoever would push the furthest and whoever could conquer. Those boundaries were constantly fluid and constantly moving, right? And so that's different for us. So sometimes it takes us a, a minute to get there. And, and nonetheless, we are still in a moment of history that will one day be history. You understand that, right? That one day this will be history, even America will be a footnote in history at some point. It's difficult for us to imagine that, but it is, it is healthy and it is good for us to imagine that, and that will help us as we enter into this story to gain um, wisdom, encouragement, and hope for our own selves and for our own future and how we should live in our day and age. And so, Daniel gives the contents of the dream first, and it is a crazy dream. I, I get the sense that even Daniel is sort of um, you know, overwhelmed by, by what God gave him. So God gives Nebuchadnezzar the dream. And then, you know, Daniel prays and says, Lord, help us or we're all going to be killed. And so God shows Daniel uh, the contents of the dream that, that Nebuchadnezzar saw and then helps him interpret as well. So verse 31, he says, here's what you saw, king. There was an image and it was mighty and it was really, really bright, exceeding brightness. And it stood before you and its, its appearance was frightening. So he says, king, what you saw was terrifying. What did he see? This figure, right? This statue-like thing. The head was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver. The middle and its thighs were bronze. Its legs and feet were iron. And then, or its legs were iron. And then its feet were partly iron and partly clay. <clears throat> and then, so this image appears, right? Um, and it's got these different makeups, right? So it's gold on top and then silver in, in the chest and arms. And then the, the stomach and thighs are bronze and then... The lower half of the legs are iron, and then the feet are a mixture of iron and clay. So this is really bizarre, really peculiar, but overwhelming, right? It's a huge and exceedingly bright image. And then, all of a sudden, <clears throat> as you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand. So this is the vision. This is the dream. No human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, all of that material is broken into pieces and become like chaff in the wind. If you're familiar with that process of the threshing floor, they would throw up the, the grain, the wheat, and, and what, you know, the, the chaff would be blown away, right? And then what was good would fall down. And so the rest, all of that material, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the clay, all of that is blown away so that not a trace could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the dream, right? Watch what Daniel does. He goes right into the interpretation. Verse 36, this was a dream, and now we're going to tell you the interpretation. You just read past that really quick. You missed the fact that Daniel doesn't like, like he's not wondering. You, you, re you realize what the king said is, hey, tell me the dream, and if you could tell me the dream, I'll know you have the authority to give me the interpretation, and I won't kill you. Daniel doesn't even pause to go, was that right? I get it? Right? 
he's, He's not wondering. He's not fearful. He's not hoping God gave him the right word. He's with confidence. He goes, all right, that was a dream. Now I'm going to tell you what it means, right? He moves right into the interpretation. He doesn't wait to be validated by the king. He is sure that he heard from God, and he is sure in God's word. He has a confidence in the word of God. Listen, church, Daniel is able to be this faithful servant of God that we celebrate in Scripture and that we look to in Scripture that has become a legend you know, in Scripture with these stories of lion's den and the furnace and, and his friends. And, and he got there by having a confidence in the word of God. The people that he was surrounded in, the people that, you know, like he, his people, the, the people of God, Israel and Judah, those kingdoms are being punished because they didn't take God's word seriously. Right? God told them to do certain things, and they just didn't for year after year and generation after generation. Daniel seems to be from a family that taught him the word of God, that discipled him, and, and taught him that God's word is firm. When God said, you will take a Sabbath rest every week, and then once every seven years, you're going to give the land a time off. And if you don't, you'll be carried off into exile. Daniel has heard that, believes that, and knows what's going on, and therefore he has a confidence in the word of God. So when God shows up and gives him this dream, and he has a confidence to just walk up and say, no, I, I, I'm sure that this is it. God's word is final. Daniel submits to it and clings to it and walks in faith by it. Listen, here's the deal. We celebrate and look to how Daniel lived uh, in this moment. Here's the deal, church. You realize we have so much more than Daniel. You realize the amount of revelation, meaning the word of God, God proving himself, God saying what would happen and doing it and showing up. You realize how much more so, how much more of God's promises have been fulfilled, how much more of history has shown that God is indeed a God of his word that we have than Daniel did. So for us to just dismiss Daniel as this, you know, incredible leader in this incredible moment is wrong because Daniel is simply living the word of God and clinging to and trusting the word of God. And that informs how he responds in this crisis. And so the word of God is our hope. It is our firm foundation. And as the world moves and questions, and a lot of that's happening right now, is that really what, is that really what God could have meant? And is the Bible really the word of God? There's whole denominations that are saying, well, it's not really the word of God. It's helpful, but we'll do here. Listen, we cannot be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave that comes down the culture that says, hey, maybe it's not, right? Maybe we should reconsider. No, no, no. We could reconsider a lot of things, but when it comes to this, it's not up for debate. It's not up for being rewrote. It's not up for being, you know, twisted and turned to make everybody more comfortable. It doesn't matter what's happening in the culture. This is our word. We stand firm on it. We cling to it, and we die with it if needed. Daniel knows that. He lives by that. And it defines him and emboldens him. So he goes right into the interpretation. And this, I want you to imagine, you're standing before this king. This is the guy who is just threatened, right? You see the fear of Nebuchadnezzar all throughout. We've only, we're not even two chapters in yet. And we've seen the fear of Nebuchadnezzar, right? We saw, um, you know, the, the, the guy that Daniel asked to change his diet. He goes, well, listen, if I do that, like he'll have my head, right? This is the guy when he gives job reviews, He's got a sword laying there, right? And he's lopping off heads. Like, that's how he rolls. And he's, you know, he's threatened. And it's not an empty threat to any wise. If they can't do what he's commanded to them to give them the dream, he's going to tear them limb from limb and then destroy their homes. Right? This is the guy that Daniel is now standing before. As we looked at last week, he's able to stand before that king because he kneeled before the true king in prayer, and he is emboldened to now go before the king of kings. I want you to imagine that, though, and he's about to give him this interpretation, and listen, it's not great news for Nebuchadnezzar, right? 
This is not like a, a rah, rah, you're the greatest. Net. Like, no, this is, this is going to be some confrontational stuff that Daniel is about to give. But he stands before this king in the confidence of the Lord, and he says this, you, O king, the king of kings. This is interesting language. This is interesting how Daniel um, gives homage and honor to Nebuchadnezzar as the ruler of the earth. Like he is unquestionably the ruler of the world in this moment. He says, you, king, the king of kings. It's lowercase, but it's important. He's giving him that, that homage. He says, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Daniel knows this. We saw this in chapter one. Nebuchadnezzar has the power that he has because who gave it to him? God, right? Leaders, rulers in our day, they have the power they have. They have the positions they have because God has allowed them to have that, right? That's why we pray for them. That's why we submit to them as, up to the degree that we are, right? We're, we're good citizens. We submit to the government up to the degree that we, we can no longer be good Christians and we got to draw the line and say, no, no, I'm loyal here, not there, right? I'm loyal to God, not you, but God's put them in place so we honor and submit. So, so he's giving them this, this acknowledgement God's given you the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And into whose hand he's given, wherever they dwell, right, the children of man. So he's saying, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you have a vast empire. We all know that. But God is the one who has given it to you. And he says, wherever the beasts of the field are, the birds of the heaven, he's given you the power to rule over them all. You, O king, are the head of gold. Okay? So in this vision, in this, in this statue-like that he sees in the dream, he says, that, that head of gold, that's, that's you, right? Nebuchadnezzar likes gold. His kingdom is known as the kingdom of gold. We saw in chapter one, whenever they conquered Jerusalem, whenever they ransacked it, they took vessels out of the temple, right? Likely of gold. They carried them from there, put them in the temple of their God, right? He is, he is collecting that. He has his gold. He has every country he's conquered. He has their gold. He is the king of gold, and he is the head of gold that is representative in this dream. <clears throat> he says, you are the head of gold, verse 39. He says, but listen, another kingdom, which is inferior to you, shall arise after you. If you read history and you study, even in, in the scriptures, you see as you know, kings of, of God's kingdoms of Israel, like there's this, um, and we all have this to varying degrees, but it's certainly amplified in a king, is how, how am I going to pass on my legacy? I'm going to pass on my rule. My reign. Like, and so Nebuchadnezzar is haunted by that in some degree. It's part of the reason that the dream is so haunting to him. He certainly knows it's probably related to his rule and his reign. So Daniel tells him, hey, another kingdom is going to come after you. It will be inferior to you. So gold and then silver, right? So it's inferior to him. And then yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule <clears throat> over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes shall break all and crush all of these. All right, what in the world, right? This is getting, this is getting weird. And, and just know that there, this is historic prophecy, okay? This is what's happening here is, is prop, like God is giving Daniel the ability to tell what's going to happen in the future, right? This is, this is prophecy saying this is what's coming. Um, and, and this is incredible. In the book of Daniel, it's, it's scary in some ways. It's a lot like Revelation. We get to the last half, we're going to wade through some crazy waters, and, and it'll be fun. But, but here's the deal. It's so accurate and so specific that this leads a lot of critics to say there's no way that was written before these events happen. 
There's no way. Daniel, the book's a fraud. It was written afterward. It can't know these things that are happening. It can't know the specific. We'll see this in, ch- in chapter 8. The way that, the, that the Daniel predicts, that God gives Daniel the ability to predict and prophesy about Alexander the Great is mind-blowing and incredible. Right? But we'll save that for, for chapter 8. But, but right now, what's happening is historic prophecy. And just know that, that there are some disagreements about which of these kingdoms are, you know, are represented what, and, and honestly, it's okay, we can disagree on that, okay? Those are open-handed issues, it, that, like whether it's, I'm gonna walk through you know, the fact that it's Babylon and then Medo-Persia and Rome, like that doesn't matter as much as what we're gonna settle on in the end is that King Jesus is the one whose kingdom lasts forever. That's a close-handed issue. These other things, as Driscoll would say, are, are open-handed issues, and that's, we're gonna, I, I want you to know that. But I think there's some incredible specificity here that's encouraging to us as we see God knows the future, is in control of the future. The one who wrote the word is the one who holds the future in his hands. So, so this is what Daniel is telling the king is the interpretation of this dream. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. There's going to come another kingdom after him of silver, of lesser um, value, but, but nonetheless a kingdom. And so we have the head of gold. And then second, we have the chest and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian empire, right? So, um, and, and that's where some discrepancy you know, comes in. Some believe that the second is, is uh, the Medes, and then the third is Persia. And so then that makes the fourth the Greek. Uh, I think the fourth is, is Rome for specific reasons. It talks about during their reign, um, the Lord setting up a kingdom, and obviously, you know, that's when Jesus comes, so we'll talk about that in a minute. And so, again, we don't have to agree on those deals, but the arms and chest of silver signifying two different arms, one of the Medes, one of the Persians, right? So that's the kingdom that's going to overtake, and even at the end of Daniel, we're going to see Cyrus the Great is the one who's ruling over that king. We see in Esther, we preached through that a couple years ago, this is who is ruling in that time. The, the Persian Empire uh, takes over the rule, the, the world reign from Babylon and becomes the next great kingdom, right? And so they're coming after Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And then after that, the belly and thighs, so the arms and chest of silver, Medo and, or Medes and Persians, the belly and the thighs are of bronze. The Greek empire uh, is what's next. Alexander the Great, as he marched, his soldiers were donned in what? Bronze, right? Their, their helmets, their, their shields, their chest plates, they had armor of bronze. And we'll look at, uh, again, some of that more specifically later in the book. But that's what's going to come after that. And then after that, and this is just historical, like these are the, these are the empires that came historically. This is just the best understanding of what was going on uh, here in this prophecy. After that, we have legs of iron, right? So the lower half of the legs and the feet, lower half of the legs of iron, and then the feet are made of iron and clay, which, which don't commingle, don't, don't exist well. Uh, you know, as a chemistry lesson, they, they uh, begin to, the, the clay will, will work against the strength of the iron and begin to, to uh, disintegrate and compromise the integrity of that. And so, <clears throat> but Rome, as we know, right, is a powerful, it is noted as the, uh, the greatest empire in history, right? We, we say things like, hey, Rome wasn't built in a day. Like, we all know about the influence of Rome. It was powerful as iron, right? Breaking everything that it touches, right? That's what it says, iron. Everything that it strikes, it ends up breaking. Well, what do we know about Rome, right? They had shifted their weapons, their armor to something called iron, which wasn't as valuable as the bronze and silver and, you know, other things that were used in the past, but it was stronger, right? And so we know that um, they marched with force and expanded the kingdom aggressively, t- 
taking over people after people, crushing them, right? Striking, crushing, cruelly, ruling over the world, expanding that empire. And they were known as the Iron Legions of Rome, right? So these things in history line up, right, with what God was saying some, you know, hundreds of years before these things began to unfold. God tells Daniel and then Nebuchadnezzar exactly what was going to happen. Now, a couple of observations before we kind of get into the application for ourselves and go on to the rest of the passage. Uh, you notice a, a, a descension in value here, right? So we start with gold and go down to silver and bronze and then iron, right? So from God's perspective, we're not getting better, right? Humanity on our own oftentimes thinks we're progressing and getting more and more enlightened and more and more, you know, uh, closer to being, you know, what we should be and having utopia and peace if we could just get this figured out and that figured out, right? We have uh, divisions, right, in our world today over what? Progressivism and conservatism, right? Like, so there is a, there is a, a pull and a, and, a, and a draw for people to continue a constant revolution, a continue progression, right? We hear things, even the abortion debate, the, the opposing sides will say, well, how could we, after so much progress, Step back into here, right? This is language that we're familiar with, even in today's tension, in today's world, right? We, humanity, believes that they're, they're to keep progressing, keep evolving toward the good. And, and here's what this is saying is, hey, listen, on, on our own, humanity, that doesn't, that doesn't work. We're, in fact, on our own, humanity continues to move further and further from the way that God designed them to be. Right? They may conquer more, they may have more power, they may learn more technology, all those things may be happening, and life may be getting better in many ways. That doesn't mean we're moving toward what God has made us to be. Right? Um, and so again, that is the same mindset, that's the same spirit of Babylon that continues to move throughout history, even in our day, uh, fueling this idea of constant moral revolution. Right? And we're in the midst of that. Changing language, changing definitions of gender, of marriage, all those things, right? It's a constant pull of this progress, right? But, so God's word says, hey, that's what's going to continue to happen. And actually, it's just going to continue to decline without the kingdom of God, but that's going to come in a moment. But, but here's the deal. Even in the midst of that decline, even in the midst of humans making things worse in many ways, God is still at work and God is doing something incredible through humanity and its empire. So verse 40 through 43 says, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. So we're talking about in the, in the realm of Rome. So the other two, the, you know, we get Babylon, we get Medo-Persian and Greek, sort of just in a mention of sentence. But the, the Roman Empire is going to get a, a bit more of treatment here because God is going to do something specific. Galatians talks about when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son. And so God has allowed all of these kingdoms to progress and to do their thing so that things would be poised for him to send his Son with strategic intentionality. Verse 40 said, There'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces, shatters all things. Like iron crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So Romans are going to come and take over all that you know, the other kingdoms had ruled and then some. Verse 41, And you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, and it shall be a divided kingdom, but some in the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed in with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, they mixed together, and they will not, <clears throat> that will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. 
So, what we know is that about 60 years before Christ um, comes, Rome succeeds Greece as the world power. Right? Their empire begins. It is, as we mentioned earlier, the greatest empire in history. It's noted often. We flippantly say things like, hey, Rome wasn't built in a day. All of that is true of this empire that is talked about here in the Bible. This is real tied to history stuff here. Uh, eventually, we know Rome became so far flung and so far reaching. It had so many peoples under its reign and its control and its empire that it, that it really couldn't control its empire anymore, right? That it became uh, unable to, to keep all of those different peoples that, that they had conquered and were ruling. It, it became unable to keep them under its control and began to scatter into different nations and cultures. That's the idea behind these different fingers or these different toes and these, this mixture, right? Is, is there was strength there, right? R Rome ruled with an iron fist, right? There was rebellion, uprising. They're going to come in and put an end to that. But nonetheless, there was this constant squabble, constant tension, constant battling of that. And it eventually led to the downfall in, but it wasn't a quick, like it, it happened in phases, right? And, and parts of the, the Roman Empire continued to exist for years and years to come. In fact, you try to figure out when that ended. There's all sorts of different dates. Why? Because there's, there's parts of that strength is in there, right? That The iron is in there. It's what it says. Part of it's in there. So it's partly strong, partly brittle, right? It kind of works, kind of doesn't. Rome is the greatest empire, but they can't control their own people, right? They can't control what they've built. But here's the deal. It's all leading up to Jesus. Here's the point. Rome is used to the end of Jesus. Jesus is coming. God has a plan. He said it back in Genesis 3 when the things went into brokenness and sin. He says, hey, one day, seed of this woman is going to crush the head of that snake and reverse the curse, right? God has had a plan. Again, Galatians says, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son. So listen, it was Rome that God used to call a census that would send a young virgin and her betrothed back to Bethlehem to give birth to a savior, born of a virgin to save the world. It was, it was Rome that within 33 or so years later hang that savior on a, one of their torture devices called a cross. It was the empire of Rome that would stamp its insignia on the, the stone that was meant to hold that Savior in his tomb. It was Rome who built all the roads and the infrastructure that would allow the news of that Savior's resurrection to go forth. To go from Jerusalem into the Roman Empire and beyond and make its way all the way here to Marion, Illinois. God knew exactly what he was doing by allowing that to happen at that time so that what Rome had built could be leveraged for the good and the kingdom of God and his advance of his kingdom. So listen, guess what? Rome, it's not an empire anymore, right? Rome, it's a thing of the past, but you know whose kingdom is still going strong? Jesus, right? Indeed, the stone here in Daniel right, that says destroyed all those and then grows, like that stone, right, it, it, it's, 
it's amazing, right? It happens in a way that, that, that no, no man can explain, right? It says, in the days of that, those kings, right? Verse 44 is where I'm at now. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, right? So while this is all happening with the world in the midst of these rulers, God's going to do something. He's going to set up a kingdom that will not be passed on. It will not be destroyed. It's not going to go away. It's not going to be forgotten in history books. It won't be a footnote. It's not going to blow away like chaff. It will never be destroyed. And it shall break into pieces all those other kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. Praise God. You hear that? You see the, the messianic language there that the stone is cut by what? No human hand. There's no explanation. There's no great man. There's no Alexander. There's no Nebuchadnezzar. There's no uh, you know, conqueror to point to. This stone is cut by no human hand and crushes this incredible image that has got Nebuchadnezzar completely freaked out, right? It crushes it. And, and it's, it starts out small, but then it becomes this incredible mountain. This is incredible. It's cut by no human hand. Listen, that's the virgin birth being foretold. That is, that is God saying, listen, one day I'm going to enter into the midst of these powers and these empires, and I'm going to build a kingdom that will never pass away. Cut by no human hand. The virgin birth is a humble beginning, and yet it's going to have an incredible kingdom launch. Jesus, as he shows up, begins to preach what? The kingdom of God is at hand. It doesn't look like other kingdoms. It doesn't look like a conquering soldier on a, with an army and with, you know, but, but he says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus talks about a mustard seed a lot, right? Beginning as the smallest, but then growing into this incredible, unmeasurable you know, tree. Jesus begins to talk about kingdom language. It starts humbly, but it advances differently. This kingdom is not going forward through human power and force and, and the bloodshed of innocent, you know, people or of conquering, you know, of kingdoms that need to be conquered. No, no, no. This kingdom's going forward. This kingdom is born in what we just celebrated in communion is the very sacrifice of the king himself. The very sacrifice of the one who would be the conqueror. He lays himself down. The one, he's not just squashing any resistance that comes like the emperors before him had done. No, no, he allows himself to be squashed by the ones who had resisted him. He allows himself to be crushed. He allows himself to be conquered. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is our king. This is the kingdom that he's building, and it advances one soul at a time. It's not just about the virgin birth, but also we see that it advances and grows not by any human hand because the Holy Spirit is the one that is, is saving soul after soul after soul after soul after soul. And Jesus called it. He says, listen, I'm not just coming for what, you know, this, this restored Jerusalem. I'm going for the whole world. Every nation, he says, you're my army, disciples. Go and tell all the peoples. He calls a shot in Matthew 24, 14. He says, listen, this is the good news of the kingdom. And when it is preached to all peoples, to the ends of the earth, then the end is going to come. See, we live in the midst between Jesus' first coming and his second, right? And that's what history is focused on. People say, well, why doesn't God prophesy or speak and talk about what's happening now? And people get all kinds of hung up about what is happening now and where does it connect with the prophecy? Here's the deal. What matters is that Jesus has come and he will come. Those are the bookends. That's the big deal. The rest of this is just details to be worked out later, right? Details for us to see how it goes. But what matters, we know Jesus has come and he will come again. And he says, I'm gonna have a people made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Listen, we know these stories of these empires from history. And, and it's something to behold them, to reflect on their power, their influence. But don't let, let us not dare do that 
without also reflecting on the influence of Jesus. Let's just look at the maps. Let's look here at Babylon. You see Assyria before that. We haven't even talked about that, but that's who you know, was right before them. But, but Babylon is, is going to be kind of the, um, the light green. It's hard to see, but a you know, little bit less than the green. But that's the Babylonian Empire. You see what they had ruled over. You see that was you know, a vast part of, the, of the, the known world at the time. And we go to the next one when we see the, the Medes and the Persians. Right, there's sort of a, a different, you know, some different things going on there, but you see the, the, the dark line around the top, that's the extent of the Persian Empire. And then on the same map, we see uh, Alexander's conquest and, and the Greeks coming into play with this. And so you see, again, there's expansion, there's shifting, there's changing. That's a great and grand empire. In the moment, no one could have imagined that that was not the greatest and the most long-lasting empire ever. And in the moment, nobody could imagine anything different would be coming other than that rule, and then we go on to see the Roman Empire advances extensively through the known world, extensively. And yet, let's check out King Jesus. The green, that's our king. King Jesus, it's not just a, a zoomed-in part of the known world. That's our king. He's, he's, he's already headed through the nations, and he's blowing through them, and there's more work to do. The red means there's more work to do right? And that's another sermon, that's another talk. But Jesus is conquering and ruling. The green is established in significant churches, right? There's a solid gospel presence. There's churches there. A certain percentage of the population is Christian, and there is good gospel work that is happening. Yellow means that there's nominal church, right? There's a good effort, good presence. Things are gaining ground, but it's not, it's not you know, past that threshold yet. And then the red is where we considered unreached or lost, meaning less than 2% of the people would claim to be evangelical Christians in those spaces. But that is our King Jesus. If you, you, there's, a, there's some videos. If you just Google the spread of Christianity, there's a few videos that just do time-lapse advancement of the spread of Christianity. And, you, and they show the other kingdoms that come and go in the midst of that. Come and go, come and go. And our King keeps going. He has come, and he keeps going, and he keeps going. And he keeps going. That's what he said he would do. He's going to start a kingdom that will never be destroyed, never be left to somebody else. Jesus is not going to abdicate the throne. He's not going to die. His line's not going to end. Somebody's not going to take him out. Jesus is on the throne. He is secure. And his kingdom will be forevermore. He literally controls the rise and fall of these kings and kingdoms. He gives them their power, their influence. He uses them for his glory. But he also is just going to flat out outlast them. His kingdom is just going to outlast them, period. Hebrews 12, turn there with me if you want. I think I've got most of it on the screen, but Hebrews 12 says this. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Hebrews is all about that Jesus has come as the final prophet. It starts out saying long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to us through prophets in different ways. In this day, he spoke it to us through his son. And so Hebrews says, listen, don't refuse him who's speaking. The word of God has come, church. This is not just some feel-good, moral, you know, do better, try harder, get your life together message. This is the word of God has come. The son of God has come. His word is final. Either receive it or deal with the consequences, which will be eternity in hell. But this is final. He says, and if they didn't escape whenever they refused him who warned them on earth, meaning the prophets and people who had, you know, came and, and given the word of God, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. That means Jesus got out off of his throne and into our world to declare the kingdom of God is at hand. And if we don't repent, if we don't trust in him as savior, if we don't surrender to him as the ruler over all, 
then we will have no excuse. We will not be spared and we will not escape his wrath and his judgment. So he's warned from heaven and it says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, right? So Jesus comes, he shakes the earth. It, literally, history, time flips on Jesus, right? Every, he has made a revolutionary change in our world when he stepped in and he has shook everything up figuratively and literally, but he's going to come again. He says, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. What on earth is he talking about? He's talking about his second coming. That this stone who came in Daniel, this stone who, who came and, and crushed the feet of this great statue and, and led to the, all of it being blown away, that this, Siri doesn't even be involved. She's having trouble hearing me. I'm yelling. My kids will say sometimes, Daddy, why do you yell? You have a microphone. I don't know. It's just what happens. But yeah, this, is, this is the word of God. And it says, listen, he's coming again one day and he, at this return, is going to shake our very existence, shake our world. The imagery there is he's going to give it such a shake that everything that has been made by man will fall away and be blown off like chaff into the wind. Other imagery is being burned up, refined and fired, right? That, that, that this earth is not being thrown away, but everything on it that is made by man that's not a part of the kingdom of God is going to be shaken and fall away. But what's going to remain? What cannot be shaken that's the kingdom of God. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We're going to come back and end with that in just a moment. That is indeed our only response to this king and his kingdom is that we just stand and worship and surrender all that we have because he is a consuming fire. Jesus is the only lasting thing. His kingdom is the only lasting thing. Everything else will be a footnote. Kingdoms led by men and armies that are noted in history, that we remember them, that's a big deal, but this stone, the one that becomes great and fills the whole earth, that's what it says. And the beautiful imagery, the stone that was cut from a mountain, verse 45, by no human hand, it broke the pieces of iron, the clay, the silver, and the gold. <clears throat> God has made known there should be a great kingdom after this, that that stone will grow to become a, a, a mountain that fills the whole earth. Jesus is going to reference that very scripture in Luke chapter 20 when he tells the story of the, the wicked tenants. Right? I won't read the whole parable, but basically Jesus tells this parable, hey, there's a man who has all this land and he leaves it with some guys to tend to it and work it and, and he goes off to do you know, some more business, to work another kingdom. And then he sends some messengers back to say, hey, you know, go get some of the profit off that land. You know, these guys have been working it. It's my land. Come and get some of it. And those guys don't want to share. They don't want to give what belongs to him. And so they kill the messenger, right? He does it again and again. And eventually the owner of the property sends his own son to collect on what they've been given. And what do they do? They kill him as well. And Jesus says, next time when he shows up, there will be no mercy shown. And he's going to take what has been given and give it to somebody else. Now, there's, Jew there's all sorts of implications there we can't fully unpack. But the point is, Luke 20, verse 17 and 18, says that Jesus looked directly at them after telling this parable and said, because they're like, no, surely God's not going to do that. Jesus says, what then is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he quotes directly from this part of Daniel. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What does this mean? 
It means that Jesus is the only thing that will last. Beyond our day, beyond history, he's the only thing that will last. And in, in, in this ancient world, and, and still, you know, to some degree, a cornerstone in a building, in, in, a, in, a, in a project to build a, a, a structure is significant. It's the principal stone. It's usually placed at, at the corner of that edifice to guide the workers in their course, right? So the cornerstone is the first stone that is placed. It's placed very carefully, and it is very significant. It is what is going to tell, it is going to be the most solid and the most carefully constructed of any of the rest of the building because it's going to be what is foundational. It's going to be the basis for every other measurement, every other direction, every other cut, every other thing that happens on that building is going to be based off of that cornerstone. Everything is aligned to it, and that's what gives it its structure. That gets off and the whole building loses its structural integrity. So here's the deal. This stone is what is going to last, whether we like it, whether we submit to it or not, period. So the invitation from Scripture is make Jesus your cornerstone. Build your life around him. I want you to think about it. What gives your life that direction right now? You make decisions every day, every year, every month. You think about the direction of your life. You think about what you value, what you invest in, how you spend your time. What's making those decisions? What's your cornerstone? Right? What determines the direction and the measurements? And the, you know, the, you're building something with your life. You realize that, right? The Bible talks about that in other language. What is your cornerstone? What's determining how you spend your time, what you do? Right? Is it money? Is that what is the primary factor in what you do, how you spend your time, how you raise your kids, what you focus on, all of those things, your energy, your emotion, is, is it money, is it, is it approval, right, what's popular, what, what styles are in, what, you know, what people are going to think well, is it, is it approval, is it people's admiration of you, is it, is it pleasure, right, sometimes it's just comfort or pleasure, right, that that's what we really make our decisions on, hey, what's going to bring me pleasure, what's going to bring me comfort, that's what we're making our decisions on. Listen, some of us need to demo our life, right? We need to start over. We need to throw all that away and start over with Jesus as our cornerstone to make sure Jesus is the one giving us our direction, determining the measurements that we're building out. Jesus is the only thing worth making our cornerstone. He's the only thing worth building our lives around because as we, we saw this in 1 Corinthians, that, that one day all of that, all of what we built will be tested by that fire. will be tested by that shaking that we saw in Hebrews. And we can either spend our life investing in things that are part of the kingdom of God that won't be shook, that won't be washed away, but instead will be breathed upon and brought into completion and we'll enjoy forever with him in the new heavens and new earth. Or we could spend our life chasing pleasure, comfort, money, approval. And when that shaking comes, it'll all be taken away. Jesus is the great cornerstone. So we, so we need to start there. Some of you are going to have to do some, some, some work to destroy everything else, but we need to build our lives around him. We start our days with him. We start our marriages with him. We start our lives with him. We do our jobs for him. We determine where we live. We determine how much money we spend. How mu like all of that is determined. We go back to the cornerstone. We look. What is aligned there? We look to Jesus to determine the rest of our lives. Listen. Some of you are thinking, listen, I've already spent way too much time building this deal, Jordan. I can't tear it down now. I can't start over, right? I got to finish this out. I, after I, maybe after I retire, or maybe I have to get to this point. Here's the deal. Jesus invites you to come. He says, you're trying to save your life. You're going to lose it. But if you'll lay it down and come follow me, you'll find it. You're like, but I'd be giving up everything. He says, I know. 
and there you'll find everything. This is the call of Jesus. This is the paradoxical nature of our faith. Everything else would say, no, build a bigger kingdom, build a bigger influence, get more power, get more money, go, 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 right? That's what the world's going to keep doing. We've got to progress this way. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. He says, the stone is going to come and crush all that. It's all going to blow away. America included, whatever comes next, it's all going to blow away. It's going to be a footnote. But what's going to last is the kingdom of Jesus. We make him our cornerstone. Let's look at a final, like that's what's going to last. Let's look at a final bit of the story to prove that point. We'll be quick here. Daniel gets promoted. Verse 48, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face, pays homage to Daniel, right? This is crazy. The, the king who nobody would dare stand in front of, Daniel stands in front of him, gives him this declaration, and that king ends up bowing before Daniel. He gives an offering and incense. So he sort of begins to start a worship service, and it feels like maybe he's worshiping Daniel, but we're going to see he actually gives glory to Daniel's God. Verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Verse 48, then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him the ruler of the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all wise men of Babylon. That's what I want to make note of. But he gives the boys a promotion too. He says, hey, one, one quick request. Take care, of Mad, uh, take care of my guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they get pro promoted as well. Daniel stays in the king's court. Verse 48 is what I want you to make note of though. This is fascinating. Daniel becomes what? The chief ruler, the chief prefect over all the wise men. If you remember a few sermons ago, this whole deal where, where Daniel's getting uh, indoctrinated and and reconditioned, right? Stripped of his name and re, you know stripped of his worldview, taught all of these things, his identity, right? To serve the mission of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldeans, all this stuff, right? And he's made to put go into the school, this three-year program, university-like to learn all these things. Daniel has to go through that. The Lord gives him favor, blesses him in that. Daniel, after this incident, is made the chief prefect over all wise men. What does that mean? Daniel kind of becomes, as Driscoll said, the dean of the college, the dean of the University of Babylon. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could have that kind of reform? All our universities be ran by a Christian, right? That'd be awesome. But that's what happens with Daniel. Why does this matter? If you remember the story we talk about in... Uh, Christmas, we sing songs, we three kings of Orient are, we talk about the wise men coming. They weren't kings, they were, they were magi, you remember that language from the Christmas story? You see that language right here, he's uh, the chief prefect over all <clears throat> the wise men of Babylon, that's the same language there, that's, that's what we get the, the word magician from, these are astrologers, these are wise men, they study the stars, they study all these things. Daniel gets put in charge of their curriculum. What do you think he starts doing? This is a bit speculative, but there's strong evidence to believe that, that the magi who would come years later, 600 years later, they would be the ones that arrived at Jesus' home and bring him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that those magi, there's strong reason to believe that they were disciples of Daniel. That when Daniel got in charge of the University of Babylon, he started teaching the prophecies of the Old Testament, the prophecies of his God, that this was going to happen at this moment. He'd be born of a virgin at this time, in this town, at this place, with all of these prophecies being fulfilled. And it seems as though these, these magi that come later, they come out of the east, which is a reference to Babylon. It's a very strong possibility that those guys that show up are the, as the first pagan worshipers of King Jesus 
disciples of Daniel. That Daniel uses his influence not to just get material gain. Listen, he's got everything handed to him. But he uses his influence not just to enjoy his best life now, but to invest down line to make disciples of these guys. And so there's evidence that, that this got carried on for generation after generation, that these guys began to teach their kids and their, the next generation of wise men, next generation of magicians and, and astrologers heard about the prophecies of this God of Israel. And so they show up at the door of the young Jesus, not at the stable, not at the manger, but at, at their home with these gifts. I gotta wonder if the gold they bring Maybe, maybe these guys heard about these prophecies and set aside the gold that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of Jerusalem and put in his, you know, temple of Marduk. I got to wonder if maybe, just maybe, they took that and held that and said, when this king comes, we're going to take him back his gold. But nonetheless, they show up with the king's gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to show that indeed he is the king with gold. He is indeed the priest, right, with the frankincense, and that he indeed will be the sacrifice of myrrh, right? This is incredible. So when you think about Jesus being the cornerstone, his kingdom everlasting, you want to invest in something that lasts, open up your Bible, teach the next generation about the ways of God, teach the next generation that his kingdom is what we should value. We stand on his word and listen, 600 years from now, 600 years from now, people could be telling stories about how you invested in them and about how their lives were forever changed because you opened up the word with them. Listen, there's a lot of talk about what's gonna, what our world's going to look like. What are we going to leave for our kids? What's America going to look like? It's really changing. I'm worried about them. Listen, we can't control all of that. And we don't know what it's going to look like. But what we do know is the kingdom of God is stand firm. So we give them that, and they'll be all right. They'll be good. So you got kids? Disciple them in the word of God. You don't have kids? We got some for you. Okay? Probably about 40 of them back in that wing right now. You could serve back there to that end, to this end. It's not just childcare, to this end. Sunday night, 6 o'clock, about 30 students, middle school and high school, meet right over there. They need some people. Not all their parents are engaged, and even if they are, they need some people. Invest down line to disciple the next generation. Church of Jesus is the only thing that's going to be lasting. Let's invest there. Let's invest there. Back to Hebrews. Let's finish this way. Hebrews says, <clears throat> let's thank God we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us, therefore, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and in awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We're going to worship. Let's be a people who have reverence and awe for our God. And we offer all that we have. We're going to see next week, it's possible to revere God, but not accept him in your heart. We're going to see that from Nebuchadnezzar, but... Let's not be that. His holiness, we, we revere him absolutely, but may we surrender and accept him as well. Let's pray. God, would you move in our midst? We need you. We are hopeless without you, and we thank you for the work that you have done, the history of salvation that we celebrate, that we've seen proven over and over again. And may we take your word and be as firm and as confident as Daniel was with what he had. We have so much more, and may we be a people of God who are trusting in you and are used by you to bring great transformation and hope to a world that is fading away and desperately clinging for whatever will, will give them transcendence and, 
and eternal hope. We know that it is only in you, Jesus. If there are some here that, that have never experienced that hope themselves, would you give them the faith to be saved today? For the rest of us, may we be brought in to be a people of God. May we be increased in our treasure of you, King Jesus. Help us. Holy Spirit, come. It's in your name we pray.